So if you would, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 6. As you're turning there, if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's Word out of respect and honor for the Holy Word of God. Isaiah chapter number 6 and verse number 1, we'll read the first eight verses of this chapter this morning. Isaiah 6, verse 1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain He covered His face, with twain He covered His feet, and with twain He did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open your precious word and to discuss this oh-so-precious doctrine, oh, this amazing attribute that you possess. And Lord, while this is a very deep subject and a very vast uh, subject, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it a little bit this morning better than we did before we walked in. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to live differently because of what we hear today. We pray, Lord, that you'd be honored and glorified with what takes place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In his book on the attributes of God, A.W. Tozer, in talking about the holiness of God, starts by sharing this thought. He wrote, They say that when Leonardo da Vinci painted his famous Last Supper painting, he had little difficulty with any of it except for the faces. Then he decided that he was going to paint the faces in without too much trouble except for one. He did not feel himself worthy to paint the face of Jesus. And so he held off and kept holding off, unwilling to approach it, but knowing he must. Then in the impulsive carelessness of despair, he just painted it quickly and let it go. There's no use, he said. I I can't paint him. He went on to write, I feel very much the same way it's about explaining the holiness of God. I think that that same sense of despair is on my heart as he begins to write this chapter on the holiness of God. Well, Brother Tozer, I know exactly how you feel. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is a sermon that is difficult to preach, as I am definitely not an expert on the holiness of God and feel very unworthy to preach on such a topic. Each and every attribute of God is infinite, and one sermon is not enough to really cover the depths 
of this amazing attribute. Nor even a series could really uh, even scratch the surface, really. So much really could be said regarding the holiness of God. And honestly, it was difficult to know what not only to include in this message, but also it was difficult to know what to leave out. Because it's all important, and it's all valuable, and it's all true. So today, we're going to only cover the tips of the iceberg of this most foundational and emphasized attribute of our great God. Now, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse number 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then he goes on to say, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So when we learn and get knowledge of who God is in His holiness, that brings true understanding in our lives. More so than all the education in this world combined. And so time spent this morning talking about the holiness of God is time well spent. It's valuable and it leads to true understanding. With that in mind, let's get started this morning. Number one, I want you to see, first of all, in this, uh, when we talk about God's holiness, I want us to see, number one, the definition of God's holiness. Before we dive into that, I, I want you to hear what Emery Bancroft said in his book, Elemental Theology. Some of this is going to be a little theological uh, teaching and, and uh, preaching this morning, so you're going to have to put on your theological thinking cap. But here's what he said about the holiness of God. He said, the holiness of God is his most exalted and emphasized attribute, expressing the majesty of his moral nature and character. This might well be called the emphatic moral attribute of God. If there is any difference in importance between the moral attributes, then God's holiness seems to occupy the first place. When it comes to defining the holiness of God, Elmer Towns had this to say, holiness may be one of the most difficult of the attributes to completely understand and define. I think part of the reason is we are not holy in and of ourselves, so it's really hard for us to understand something that we don't, we are, we are not, we, we, not, we are not, there we go. Uh, A.W. Tozer goes on to say this, we cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The nature of man is to blind it to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but holiness... He can never even imagine. Well, the basic meaning of the word holiness is set apart or separate or separation. When it comes to God's holiness, on one side of the equation, God's holiness has to do with Him being completely separate or apart from evil or from anything that defiles. In Leviticus chapter number 11 and verse 44, the Bible says this, For I am the Lord your God, Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. He goes on to say, For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And in the context there, he's saying, Do not defile yourself. And he goes on to list some of the things to not defile themselves with. Because God is holy in that He is completely separate from any evil 
or that which defiles. So on one side, God in His holiness is against anything that is evil, and He is separate from anything that is evil. But on the other side, Scripture teaches us that God's holiness means that He is the ultimate definition of perfection, purity, and absolute integrity in His nature and in His character. John the Apostle wrote this in his epistle in, verse, in chapter 1. He said, This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. He's completely pure. Another passage that makes this abundantly clear is, is found in the, the minor prophet Habakkuk. Uh, you may have forgotten about that minor prophet, but he said this in, in, in chapter 1 about the Lord. Habakkuk 1 verses 12 and 13 say, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? And then verse 13 says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. The Lord can't see iniquity, because He's so pure. You and I see it every day as we go through our life. We can't drive down the freeway without seeing iniquity. But God in His purity and His holiness can't look on iniquity. God is holy, meaning that He is completely separate from the unholy or common. Holiness is distinctiveness, distinctiveness from all others. It distinguishes the divine Creator from all other things. He is separated not merely from creation because of its sinfulness, but in essence different from creation also. He is absolutely independent of His creation, outside of it or transient from it. He doesn't need His creation to exist. You and I need the creation to exist, and we need our Creator to exist. God doesn't need any of it. Creation is dependent upon Him, and He is not dependent upon it. Holy means God is transcendent or beyond the limits. He is supreme and absolute in greatness. He is free of space and time in a totally unique dimension outside of His created universe. I don't know if you understand what holiness is a little because of that, but that's the definition of holiness. It is something that is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we are not holy in ourselves. Uh, the only holiness that we can possess is the holiness that God gives us. I want you to see, secondly, this morning, the degree of holiness, the degree of God's holiness. How holy is He? We know that God is holy. Psalm 22 and verse number 3 says, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. He's holy. But how holy is us? In our text this morning, we see in verse number 3, the seraphim singing a song, and here's what they are crying one to another. Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. As Isaiah stared in silence, dumbfounded by the vision that he saw, the cry would sound out again and again and again. The substance of their songs of praise was the declaration, not necessarily of the love of God, not of the truth of God, not of His justness, but of His holiness. You see, this is the crux of Isaiah's vision here in Chapter number 6, for the seraphim song reveals the awesome message concerning God. 
The main focus of the song is the repetition of a single word, and that, of course, is the word holy. Nowhere do they sing God is love, 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 though he is love. God is mercy, 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 though he is merciful. The attribute that is most emphasized in Scripture is his holiness. The main focus of the song is the repetition of a single word, holy. Three times the word is sung in succession, giving the church its most lofty anthem, holy, holy, holy. Why is the word holy uttered three times? That's a great discussion. Well, in English, right, we emphasize with italics, underlining. Or if you're trying to yell in a text message, you capitalize everything. (laughs) Um, But in the Hebrew language, uh, you emphasize through comparatives and, and repetition. Comparatives are repeated twice. You think about the example of the Apostle Paul and his writings. And one we read yesterday morning, if you were part of the men's prayer breakfast. Rejoice, and again I say, rejoice. It's, it's repeated for emphasis sake, so that we kind of pay attention a little bit more. Right? When your mom used to tell you to do something, and you better clean your room, and she has to tell you twice, it's not a good thing. Paul tells us to rejoice twice. And Jesus even uses the same type of a language when he, remember in, in, in John chapter 3 and verse number 3, where he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What he's trying to do is saying, hey, look, pay attention. What I'm about to say is really, really important. Those are comparatives. And superlatives are repeated three different times. And so this repetition of holy, holy, holy is expressing an ultimate truth about God. Only on a handful of occasions does the Bible repeat or elevate something in the third or superlative degree. And it does so about the holiness of God both here in Isaiah chapter 6 and again in Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 8 where the Bible says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. You see, God is not simply holy, And he's not simply holy, holy. He is the thrice holy God. The seraphim and the cherubim, the the beings in closest proximity to God. And most familiar with his presence, with what God is like, proclaim that holiness is the fullest expression of who and what the Lord is. Holiness is central to who God is. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2 says this, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Doesn't that remind you of the song we just sung a few moments ago? There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Exodus 15 and verse number 11 says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, question mark. And the answer to that is, there is none else. He is the holiest of holies. 
so we see the definition of God's holiness, the degree of God's holiness. Thirdly, I'd like you to notice the display of God's holiness. How does this holiness uh, manifest itself in the Lord? Well, first of all, I, I see that His holiness is involved in His name. His name is holy. Psalm 119, I'm sorry, sorry, one, Psalm 111, verse number 9. Psalm 111, verse 9 says, He sent redemption unto His people. He hath commanded His covenant forever. Holy and reverend is His name. Now, since I became a pastor, a few people have called me reverend. And I, I'm not offended by that necessarily, but I don't ever really want to be called that. That name really belongs to him. <laughs> Isaiah 57 and verse 15, For thus saith, thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. His name is Holy, Luke 1 and verse 49, For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. We go down through the, the different members of the Trinity. Right? God the Father. His name is called Holy Father when you look at it in John chapter 17. So God the Father is called the Holy Father. Not some priest. Not some guy wearing a robe. Only God the Father is called that. God the Son is also called the Holy One in Acts chapter number 3. So Jesus is referred to as the Holy One. And of course, God the Spirit is often referred to as the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And many times is He referred to in both of those ways. <laughs> And folks, that's why it's important for us to not take the name of our God in vain. Because His name is so holy. Let's be careful about how we use His name. Let's not be flippant. Because His name is indeed holy. So the display of God's holiness is found in His name. It's also found in His Word. His Word is holy. Uh, this book... Well, mine's kind of rubbed off here, but at one point it said Holy Bible, right? Jeremiah chapter number 23 and verse 9 says, Mine heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of His holiness. See, His word is holy. No wonder the book that you and I hold in our hands is called the Holy Bible. Let's treat it as such. Let's realize the value of it and get into the Word of God and learn it and most of all live it. What else is holy? How else is His holiness displayed? It's also displayed in His works. In His works. Psalm 145 and verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and holy in all His works. Everything that God does is holy. He has never made a mistake nor ever will make a mistake. As we've been going through in our series on Wednesday night on creation and, 
And everything that, that he has created, he looks at it and says, and it was good. Why? Because his works are holy. And it is good. There is no error or fault in it. So we see the degree and the display of his holiness. We're going to get into the real part of the message this this morning, and that is number four, and finally this morning, our, our decisions regarding God's holiness. You might be thinking, wow, that was quick. This is going to be a quick one. This next point is a little bit longer. Our decisions regarding God's holiness. Now that we know God is holy and that He is holier than anything or anyone that has ever been and ever will be, and we know how His holiness has been displayed, what kind of decisions should we make because of it? How should that affect me and you? How should that affect the way that I live? And how how should it affect the way that you live as well? Your Bible is open to Isaiah chapter 6. Look with me in verse number 5. After Isaiah gets this vision of God in his high and lifted up status, God who is holy, 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 and he sees all of that. And then verse number 5, Isaiah's response, he said, Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I also dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, the first decision we need to have when it comes to God's holiness is a decision of humility. You see, it was only when Isaiah saw God for who he really was, the one who is holy, 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 then he became aware of who he was, sinful, and undone. And when you and I realize who God is, it's not the time to look in the mirror and say, how wonderful I am. I'm just such a great guy. It's an opportunity to see us for who God sees us, or for how God sees us. Isaiah got the picture of who he was. He saw his sin. It was like you, you kind of have a, a shirt that's white and it's, you've been kind of having the shirt for a long time and washing it. Then you get a brand new white shirt, and all of a sudden you realize how not white that old shirt really is. You're like, wow, that's kind of dingy. I didn't realize that. But for all the while, you were looking at it going, man, this is a pretty nice white shirt. But once you see a true white shirt, then you realize this shirt isn't as good as I thought it was. Same thing is true when you look at the Lord for who He is. You realize, oh, not as good as maybe I thought I was. Some areas I need to work on. It's kind of pointing out some areas that are a little dirty. And that's what was happening in the book in in, in Isaiah's life here in in chapter six. Several other examples in the Word of God of people who who didn't look at God's holiness and say, well, that's nice, and continued on their way. That's not how they responded. They responded in humility. Think about Adam. As he was in the Garden of Eden with his wife, and he took that forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and 
The Bible says in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, the eyes of them were both open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves aprons. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the tree of the garden. They were afraid. Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Not because God didn't know where he was. When Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, it caused him to run away in humility. It was maybe the wrong type of humility in that case, but it was humility nonetheless. When Moses hid his face from God, I think of in Exodus chapter number 3 and verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And the Bible says Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. Too many times, I think, in churches, we're painting Jesus to be, he just wants to be your friend. Yes, he is the friend of sinners, I get that. But we're forgetting God's holiness to make us have a real, true, honest humility to understand who we are in his eyes as sinful beings who have offended him. I'm not trying to be negative today, I'm just trying to be honest. Ezekiel, when he got a vision of God, he, the Bible says he fell on his face. Ezekiel 1 and verse 28, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of one that spake. Ezekiel didn't go, hey, Lord, what's up? He fell on his face out of humility because of how he did not compare to the glory that he saw. Think about the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration and they fell on their faces because they were afraid as well. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. It would do us well to get a glimpse of God's holiness again in our country. Uh, we used to have that glimpse as a country when this was founded. And that's why sin wasn't near as rampant, though it still existed. Sometimes we think it was utopia back in the 17 and 1800s. It was not utopia. Sin still was present, but there was still an appreciation and understanding of God's holiness in this nation. But in 2019, I'm afraid it's all but gone. And these type of messages are, are few and far between among churches in our land. We're afraid to preach about God's holiness because we know what it's going to cause us to do. Fall on our face instead of walking out, patting ourselves on the back, thinking, I'm a good guy. I know sometimes we need to be encouraged. I know sometimes we need to be comforted and, 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 and uplifted. I understand that, and I like to do that. But when you look at God's holiness, you realize how not white you are, how dirty you and I are. And I'm not saying you. I'm saying me. 
Think about the John the Apostle as he wrote the book of Revelation. Boy, he had an amazing opportunity to see some things that no one else has ever seen. And he got to write them down for us to be able to read. Here's some of the responses to what he got to see. Revelation 1 and verse 17. John said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. He didn't just go up and say, oh, I'm going to give you a big hug. God's holiness caused John to fall down at his feet as dead. The 24 elders in Revelation 4. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Revelation chapter 5, it talks about uh, these, these, these 24 elders as well. Four B said, Amen, and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. Revelation 7, and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. See, God's holiness should produce a humility in our lives. It should not produce pride. I'm not saying false humility where you think you're the worst person alive. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an honest assessment of who you are in God's eyes. Not how you compare, by the way, with your neighbor, with your spouse, with your brother or your sister, but how you compare with him. Too often we kind of compare ourselves among ourselves. And Paul said to the church at Corinth, that's unwise. Stop comparing yourself one among the other. Start comparing yourself. If you really want to compare, start comparing yourselves to the Lord. And that'll cause a true humility. J.C. Ryle said, I am convinced that the first step toward attaining a higher standard of holiness is to realize more fully the amazing sinfulness of sin. When you get an idea of who God is and you see Him in His holiness, then you'll realize how sinful sin really is in your own life. Not in someone else's life, but in your own life. So our decisions regarding God's holiness ought to produce a decision of humility. And I'm praying that all of us will walk out of here with a true biblical humility. God said, or Peter uh, wrote in his book, um, at the end of his book, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Knowing that he has a mighty and a holy hand, let's humble ourselves under his hand. So it should propel us to a decision of humility. It also should propel us, secondly, to a decision of holiness, that we would take on this characteristic of God in our own lives. I've shared this little bit here with you before, but for those who maybe haven't heard, quarterback, old quarterback and ESPN commentator Joe Theismann allegedly explaining to his soon-to-be ex-second wife why he had an affair. He said, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. Does he? No, Joe, God doesn't want you to be happy. And no Cornerstone Baptist Church, God doesn't want you to be happy. 
as much as he wants you and I to be holy. By the way, when we decide to live a holy life, we're going to find that it is the way to a happy life. But when you decide to live an unholy life, I guarantee it's not going to be happy. The Bible says the way of transgressors is hard. It's not an easy life. Those of you who perhaps got saved later in life and out of a, out of a tough background, you know what I'm talking about. It was not an easy life living in sin. Just ask the prodigal son how life was when he was footloose and fancy, living in all that freedom that he thought he had. Pretty soon, the way of the transgressor got very hard for him, didn't it? No, God doesn't want us to be happy so much as He wants us to be holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, you knew I would mention this verse. Verse 15 and 16, But as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills, John Brown said. Now, living a holy life sometimes seems a little out of reach for many Christians, kind of impossible to do. Let me explain it a little bit this way. For example, many of you know that uh, one of the men in our church, Brother Gary Luno, I don't see him this morning, he's out over there somewhere. Brother Gary Luno is a great mechanic. In fact, um, many of you may or may not know that he used to own a mechanic shop in the past. And he still loves to work on cars. Well, for sake of illustration, let's suppose he was, in fact, the greatest mechanic in the world. And I asked him about this, and he said, make sure you don't say that I really am, because I know I'm not. (laughs) But let's suppose that he really was the greatest mechanic in the world. And and he was going to teach me how to become a great mechanic as well. And he told me, now, Eric, I want you to know I'm the world's greatest mechanic. Because of that, you better learn everything I teach you or else. Now, if if he said that, I got to tell you that I'm going to be a nervous wreck by the end of the training cycle because he's placed the entire burden on me, right? Yes, he's the greatest mechanic in the world, but he said, I better learn everything, and so I just got a lot of pressure on me now. But let's suppose he, he said it a different way. Let's suppose that instead Gary said to me, now listen, Eric, I'm the world's greatest mechanic. Since I am the world's greatest mechanic, all you need to do is pay attention. Let me guide you and prepare you, and I will give you everything you need to be successful and productive. And if you forget something or make a mistake, I'll be right there to help you every step of the way. Now, after listening to that, I I know that I too can be a great mechanic. Why? Because the burden's not on me, but on the teacher. Do you see the parallel when it comes to God's command for us to be holy? You see, we put the emphasis on the wrong part of God's command. We focus on the be holy part. But the real power is in the 
for I am holy part. You see, I can't truly be holy without God's holiness working in me. Brother Ed shared, or Brother Ed shared the story yesterday about the man who uh, got the chainsaw for a, for a gift, and he, he couldn't figure out how to turn it on. He thought it was broken, so he took it back to the, the guy and said, this thing's just a piece of junk. I can't get it to work. And he's like, well, how do you, how do you saw? And he started taking the thing and got a piece of wood, and he's like, <laughs> like no, 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 that's not, that's not how you're supposed to do it. And that, that, that store attendant got that thing and ripped that thing. and Oh. When it comes to God's, to, to living a holy life, it's not about us working harder and trying harder. It's about the Lord working in us. You see, it's His holiness in our lives that can produce holiness in our lives. Now, obviously, don't get me wrong. We have a part in being holy. We can't just... I'm not going to do anything. God, you need to make me holy. Uh, we, we have a part in it. God says, be ye holy. Our part is to be obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he gives us direction. Our, our biggest failure a lot, is, a lot of times when it comes to holiness is our disobedience to God's word and, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When he prompts us to do something and, and we don't want to do it. Although holiness may seem out of reach, when we allow the Holy Spirit complete control of our lives, We will see God's holiness in us. And so I ask you, are you and I living a holy life? Let me ask it this way. If I went to your coworkers or to your neighbors and asked them this question, is, and I would say your name, is this person a Christian? How would they respond? Would they say, oh, absolutely. They talk about it all the time. And the guy prays at every meal. He'll pray with the people who are hurting at work. And he's always there to help out. And he's been inviting me to church. And, and he's the best employee at our company. Yeah, he's a Christian for sure. I can tell. Or would they say, that person? You know, I, I'm really not sure. I don't know. I'm, they've never said. Can't really tell. Or would they say, that person? A Christian? Are you kidding me? You've got to be crazy. You've got the wrong guy. You see, this guy is the furthest thing from a Christian. This guy's in the bar with me every night after work. He's a terrible employee, cuts people down all the time. No, he's not a Christian. You've got the wrong person. Based on that, are you living a holy, separate, distinct, set-apart life? You see, the writer of Hebrews tells us to follow peace with all men and holiness. Now, one area of danger with living a holy life is that we can be tempted to have a holier-than-thou mentality. How many of you have heard that before? Probably all of us have. Look, the motive for living a holy life is not about making our name great. No, it's about making God's name great. Our lives should point others to think right thoughts about Him. It's not a holiness contest, by the way. See, the idea is to make Him look good, not to make you look good or to make me look good. John the Baptist rightly said, He must increase, but I must decrease. Living a holy life is about me saying no to my will, to my preferences, to my desires, to my wants, 
to my feelings and my rights so that He would increase in my life. All in order that He would be lifted up and as a result, people would be drawn to Him and not to me. Richard Baxter said, Remember your ultimate purpose. And when you set yourself to your day's work or approach any activity in the world, let holiness to the Lord be written upon your hearts in all that you do. So when asking whether or not you should participate in a certain activity, ask yourself, would this reflect the holiness of God to the world around me? Would this cause people to think that God is holy if I do this thing? When it comes to your entertainment choices, ask yourself, is this going to reflect the holiness of God? to my family, to my heart? Is this going to be something that's going to reflect God's holiness? The use of your time, the way that you spend your money, the way that you talk, the words that you allow yourself to say, the way you do your job, the way you treat others, the way you worship, what you allow yourself to think about. Finally, we need to stop comparing ourselves to others and start measuring ourselves by the correct standard, and that is to the Lord. These are convicting thoughts for sure. So when it comes to the holiness of God, what are our decisions? We should have a decision of humility. We should also have a decision of holiness. Let me wrap it up this morning by, by kind of changing gears a little bit. God's holiness is beyond anything that we really can comprehend. And our sinfulness is great. And when you kind of look at the two and say, how, how then are we supposed to have a relationship with God? How does that work? Well, R.A. Torrey once exclaimed this. He said, the wonderfulness of God's love! Exclamation point. It would be no wonder if an unholy God could love unholy men. He said, that would, that would make sense if an un, unholy God would love unholy men. But he goes on to say, but that the God whose name is holy, the infinitely holy God, and love being so utterly sinful as we are, that is the wonder of the eternities. There are many deep mysteries in the Bible, but no other so profound as this that the holy God would love Eric Johnson. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. Well, Paul hadn't met me yet. <laughs> Paul probably hadn't met you yet, you, you yet either, right? All of us probably could say the same thing. We're all sinful beings. For God in His holiness and His perfection... To look down on a bald-haired, four-eyed guy and say, I love that guy. That is a beautiful mystery that I don't know that I ever will understand. But I can simply be thankful for it. Yes, God is holy, and you and I are not. But God in His love and in His grace has made a way for us to know Him. You see, He sent His only Son to this earth. He was 
born of a virgin in Bethlehem's manger, lived a perfect and sinless life since he was indeed the Holy One. He was crucified on the cross just outside of Jerusalem on a mount called Calvary. And it was there that the Holy One actually became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It was there He demonstrated His love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. After He died, He was placed in a borrowed tomb. And then they put a large stone over the entrance of the tomb to ensure no one could go in and no one could come out. Well, three days later, that stone praise the Lord, rolled away and Jesus rose from the dead to prove that He was indeed God in human flesh and that He could provide eternal life for you and for me. Well, that message has changed the lives of countless people since and today. Maybe it could change your life as well. Now, how can we have a relationship with God? By believing on the Son is the simple answer. John said in his gospel, He that believeth On the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And what does that very famous verse, John 3.16, say once again? For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so if you're here today and you've never believed on him for salvation, may I encourage you to do so. It is an amazing thought that the holy God of the Bible invites you and I, sinful beings, to a relationship with Him. He made it all possible through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. For those of us who do know Him, let's remember that we serve a holy God. May that cause us to be humble. And may it propel us to live a life of holiness as as we reflect our God to the world around us, which is our purpose in this life.